And it's Murphy Houston. Welcome into Mile High Magazine. Hope you're all safe, staying with your family, staying hunkered down as we uh, try to beat the the virus that's out there lingering over us day in and day out. But we here at uh, Bonneville Broadcasting are trying to keep things going. Uh, My guest today is Ned Breslin, who is the CEO of Tennyson Center. Ned, how are you today? I'm great, Murphy. Thanks so much for having us. Well, it's my pleasure, and we should let people know I'm at home hunkered down. You're at the Tennyson Center. We're on phones. That's why it might sound a little different. But yeah. We're keeping uh, the shows going because it's important for people to be informed. And really, Ned, it's important to know I, I've been affiliated or known about the Tennyson Center for years mm-hmm. and all the, all the great work you guys do over there. But those that don't know, and we have new people moving to Colorado and Denver all the time, talk about the Tennyson Center and what you're doing for children and what it does primarily. Can you address that? Sure. Uh, so the Tennyson Center for Children uh, started out as an orphanage uh, in Loveland, Colorado. The, the original home is actually still there. It's behind a Denny's. Is that right? And, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. We went there a while ago, and the, uh, we got to go inside, and it looks like an orphanage inside. All the doors are tiny, you know, because the kids were little back sure, in the Sure, that's, oh, bet that's amazing to see that. Yeah, yeah. So Tennyson started in 1904. Uh, was started by a Christian community called the Disciples of Christ, and for a long time it was known as Colorado Christian Home. Um, we moved to Denver uh, in 1908, and we've been here ever since. We do a couple of things. So our primary focus is children and families who've experienced trauma from ab- abuse, neglect, and maltreatment. And we have three core programs. We have a residential program, which is... Um, for 32 children right now who live on our campus who, uh, for a variety of reasons and because of the nature of their trauma, uh, cannot live in a family-like situation. Most have been removed from their homes, um, and they are navigating that trauma here by living on our campus um, We also have a day treatment program, which includes those 32 children plus another 70 children who have experienced trauma from uh, neglect, abuse, and maltreatment. And the goal of that is it's a therapeutic school that helps them process their trauma, keep up with their schooling, and get them back into public school. And finally, we have a program called Community-Based Services, which is clinicians and social workers who work in uh, all over the state in families to help them process their trauma in their ho- in their home with wow. their network with the goal of them not coming to our campus. We don't want them to come to our campus. We want them to stay in their community and stay in their ecosystem. So Tennyson has been doing that since 1904. Um, we get amazing results. We see dramatic reductions in police contacts. We see dramatic reductions in hospitalizations. We see major therapeutic breakthroughs and these kids and these families are all around us. They're your neighbors, they're in your schools, and they're grappling with a lot of things, and Tennyson helps them uh, succeed as families and children and, and and become successful adults. And you've been doing that, as you said, for a long time. But I'm sure, uh, Ned, I, I guess I've never heard it addressed as a campus. Can mm-hmm. you explain what that is? You have several buildings now? Yeah, so, if you, so we're literally a city block of we have a huge school and then there are five what we call cottages they're living residences for children who 
um, for a variety of reasons, have been removed from family-like situations. So they're not with their bio parents. They're not with an aunt, uncle, or grandparent. They're not with a foster family. Um, so they they live on our campus, and we're working with them 24-7. Um, and it's it's a bit interesting if you pass our campus – um, a lot of people don't know what it is. You know, it, it kind of blends into the neighborhood a little bit. Sure. Um, and so even our neighbors sometimes are like, I didn't even know that's what you were. Um, so we try to we try to reduce our footprint on the neighborhood because kids experiencing trauma, you know, they can get sparked and, and they can um, be loud, they can run, they have to get it out. And our neighbors are phenomenal and we try as best we can to blend in to the community. But yeah, it's a vibrant community with lots of kids. Where, now, what, where are you? You have an address, we, obviously. Sure, we're 29th and Tennyson, uh, just north of uh, my high stadium. Yeah, that's why well, I know it's there, but maybe other people do not know. And it does blend in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it if does. You were, if you drive by there, you'd have no idea you guys were there. Nope. And, and I guess, like you say, that's probably a good thing, low profile, and and the neighbors help yeah. out a lot. That's that's fantastic. And maybe, again, we're talking to Annette Breslin, who is the CEO of Tennyson Center. How long have you been there, Ned? I've been here for over three years now. Uh, I joined, I actually did international water and sanitation for 27 years, lived in Africa for 16, but decided to get into child welfare a number of years ago because the journey that these children go through and the experience they have is actually very similar to my personal journey. So I grew up in an alcoholic abusive family and uh, um, processed a lot, uh, lived with three uh, families who were not mine, and actually, my favorite story is the last family I was living with. I completely fell in love with their daughter, and uh, we've been together for 38 years. How about that? That should be on the Hallmark Channel, Ned. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't tell foster families that because then they would never foster another boy ever. <laughs> but it's a good story. Well, it's a good a story. story. So I felt it was time to give back to my community. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. And let's talk more about what you're doing there. Explain maybe a little more in detail. Who are the children and the families that you serve there at the Tennyson Center? Are they all just local Colorado? Are they national? How does that all work? Yeah, so we only support children in Colorado. Um, we have There are times pressure for us to take um, kids from out of state, but we do not do that. We There's big enough need in Colorado, and we're here for Coloradans. Um, the children who come to Tennyson generally have been uh, navigating the child welfare system for quite some time. Um, and so kids who are here uh, sometimes have been in 10 places before they've gotten oh. here. Um, we had one girl who's nine years old uh, who we got back to a really good family, to an uncle, uh, but we were her 17th placement. Oh, my and, God. And that's and insane. Nine years old? Nine years old, yeah. Oh. So we work with kids uh, we work with kids zero to eighteen, but on our campus it's five to eighteen, and basically their experiences with trauma have been significant. They um, generally come to us uh, when other options have failed, uh, and we are relentlessly focused on this being the last time they're ever on a campus like ours or the last time they're ever in child welfare. We spend a lot of time helping them process their trauma and build from their strengths uh, because a lot of these kids have been told that they're bad kids, they're rotten, they're stupid, they're, you know, all the kind of 
harsh sure. labels we put on on children whose behaviors we don't understand when in fact they're wrestling with a lot that we can't even imagine and i am constantly startled by their their strength their resilience we have uh just one quick story there's a girl who started a coffee cart here um, so she's an entrepreneur. She goes around, she sells coffee and tea and cookies that are made by kids here and everything um, to staff. She has a deal with me where I give her 20 bucks every so often so that when she sees a staff person who's having a hard day, because the staff are remarkable, they're working with this like crazy, she'll give them a free cup of coffee. So she's an entrepreneur. She is hiring people to help her out. And uh, she has amazing empathy and compassion, so she can see people who are struggling. And, and so a lot of people define these kids as in, in negative kind of deficit terms, and we see them as entrepreneurs and artists and poets. And when they get on their feet, they're, they're a little unstoppable, you know, because they're, sure. they're a little fearless, right? They, they've been through a lot. And, I was going to say, they've been through a lot. They could be yeah. a challenge. Yeah, wow. and and that's being tested right now, my friend. <laughs> oh my gosh! And and tell me about the angle with because not all the children are there at the campus. You mentioned that, and yeah. now they work and you work with the families as well as some of these children. Yeah. So what we're doing, uh, w- the biggest drive for us is to actually not have children come onto our campus. I mean, we're here for those kids who really need it. And we will continue to be here until that dries up. But the goal is really to get out into the community and work with families in their home environment, help them as a family unit process their trauma together and continue to advance in school, um, stay out of kind of hospitals and police contact, like I said, to integrate back in because a lot of these families get really isolated. And what we're really good at is not only helping them process their trauma, but frankly, we're really good at help strengthening their network so that they're not quite so alone. Um, that program is about 75% of our work. So a lot of people get drawn to the stories of our campus because they're so dramatic. But the truth is, is that the biggest part of our work is all the work going out throughout Colorado trying to keep people off our campus so that they can heal and thrive in their own, in their own homes. And we're really good at it. We've, we get we get kids who and families who are on the verge of of breaking up or or of child welfare coming and taking the kid out. And if the families are safe, which a lot of the families really are safe, um, we've been able to keep ninety three, ninety four percent of those families together. Um, and that's just really good. That's good for Colorado. That reduces um, that reduces stress and and trauma and senses of abandonment. And frankly, it saves Colorado a ton of money. So it does, and it helps those children recover quicker, I would imagine, when they're right there where they're a comfortable area, where they're used to. Yeah, I mean, I needed, just just at a personal level, I needed to be not in my house, right? My father was, you know, physically, emotionally, and sexually abusive, so I couldn't be there. Um, But, you know, there's something about being in a safe home, which was, for example, the last home I lived in, where you can actually settle and you can start to feel safe and people can start to to be support to you as opposed to being afraid. And what we're finding is the more we can keep families together, um, as long as nothing is happening like what I just explained, yeah. then that is better for kids. It's just better for kids. And it's frankly, it's better for parents. And so that's what we're trying to do. And you're doing it. Congratulations. Thank and you. And I, I want to address... 
you, the stories you're telling us and some of the problems of one child in uh, 17 different homes and she's only nine years old, the trauma you must face when those children come. Talk about your staff. Talk about the people that are there at Tennyson Center mm-hmm. that are turning these lives around. I can't imagine. They must be incredible. I, I got to tell you, I just wrote an article in the Colorado Sun, if anyone wants to look at it, but there, I am always inspired, before COVID-19, I am always inspired by people who run towards these um, families and kiddos who everyone else is kind of running away from because they can't handle their behaviors. Our staff are phenomenal. We have social workers, clinicians, teachers, and frankly, support staff who come to work every day and say, what am I doing today to help that kid and that family stand a little stronger based on their strengths? And and you see it all the time. Our Our staff are truly remarkable. They carry an enormous amount of secondary and tertiary trauma because they're basically taking it all in and helping families process it. So we do a ton of work getting them the support they need. But I will tell you, you know, now in this in this age of everyone staying home and all that kind of stuff, we are fully running right now because trauma does not pause for a pandemic. And you are seeing, we're going to see in society like these these social workers and clinicians and nurses and truck drivers and all that kind of stuff who are generally the lowest paid who are the ones standing right now in in the face of coronavirus and we do this every day and our staff do it every day and we've just upped our game um because of the the stress and fear and anxiety that is amplifying the trauma that these families are experiencing. Oh, I, I can't imagine. And I'm glad you brought up that topic because that was some of the questions I wanted to ask you too about how COVID-19, the pandemic has changed how you're serving these kids and families. And apparently through tremendous effort of you and your staff, nothing's changed. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've done a couple things differently that are really important. So we've done a lot to protect our staff. Um, so, uh, you know, we followed all the CDC guidelines on who can be on campus and who can't. Um, and so people with, for example, compromised immunity, for whatever reason, they uh, they are staying home and working remotely now. We have 32 children on our campus. We've expanded the number of kids we can have on our campus because Departments of Human Services are needing extra beds. Um, we've developed a nurse rotation type policy where staff are on three days and off four days. Uh, we are continuing continuing with school for the kids on our campus. Um, because they need structure and organization. One class is doing a graphic novel explaining this moment in time. It's phenomenal. They have writers and drawers. Cool. It's cool idea. Cool. Um, but the other thing we're doing is we're working with over 400 families right now, um, and so we spent the last two weeks, we, we got a little bit ahead of this, um, so we bought up a ton of computers and hotspots because most of the families we work with do not um, have ready access to that kind of um, technological capacity. And so our IT department and our clinicians have been going into homes and getting them all set up so they can t- continue with schooling, continue with telehealth and therapy. Um, and frankly, we're getting a ton of um, requests from our, our community about uh, lack of access to food and, and critical supplies, medication. Um, we have a couple of families whose... Uh, um, home situation is under threat, so we're paying rent, uh, we're paying electricity bills, all that kind of stuff, um, so that we can actually 
as much as possible calm people down but keep them on their healing journeys. Um, so our staff are doing phenomenal work right now, and we're getting asked to do more, and we're, we're doing more because, like I said, trauma doesn't take a break. No, at all. it does not. <laughs> Are you getting any outside help? Do you need, like, volunteers of people that might be listening to us now? Because we know there's a lot of people out there that want to help, yeah. healthy, but they don't know how to help or where to go. I mean, can you use help like that? Yeah, I mean, we can and we can't. So, so the one thing is we've had to lock down the campus, so we don't have visitors right now. Um, but we've set up uh, – Tennyson is very rich in volunteer opportunities, and when this is over, I would ask everyone who wants to come and stand and support uh, children who are navigating this to please reach out to Tennyson. In this period of time, we can't do it because we're trying to keep this community as isolated as possible. What we are looking for is we've gotten all the computers and hotspots we need through a combination of buying and donations. Um, what we really need is is financial support, and I'm not a big pusher of that all the time, uh, but we do right now because we're being asked to do things that um, uh, we haven't expected. So if people you know, are interested, please check out our website and donate to Tennyson uh, right now because we can convert that into immediate and changing needs um, as, as this pandemic unfolds. Well, give us that website, Ned. Yeah, www.tennysoncenter.org, and we we really appreciate you know the community rallying around kids who society um, has generally written off. And I'm telling you, these are the greatest kids and the greatest staff. And so, any support people can give, we will be here 24/7 uh, as we always are because these kids um, have nowhere to go. They have are nowhere to go right now. Are some of the staff locked down there at Tennyson Center with the kids? No, what we do is we, we have a really good rotation schedule because okay. the work is really hard, so they go, come in and go off. But what we are doing is is making sure that uh, the health and safety of the children and the staff are paramount. So we've worked out a bunch of deals, and we're doing a lot of um, screening. Uh, and right now we're okay, so knock on wood. Um, we we have a couple of colds, but no coronavirus, so we're we're hoping. We're you hoping. have capabilities of testing if there becomes a question yeah. about that. Yeah, i got to tell you that we have a phenomenal doctor, and Children's Hospital has been spectacular. And what Children's Hospital is trying to do, um, and we're working with them really closely, is, as you can imagine, all hospitals are trying to figure out, like, how can we um, support organizations but not have them flood our hospitals until it's absolutely needed. So Tennyson has turned one part of our campus into an infirmary. Um, should it be needed? It's not needed yet, but we um, have the capacity to manage uh, lower-level situations for now, and if it escalates, we can go to Children's, and Children's will will provide us the support we need to, again, keep kids away from them and staff away from them unless it becomes absolutely necessary, because they're worried, as you can imagine, that people sure. are just going to flood it. So we're part of a community Trying to trying to help them succeed as well. Ned Breslin, CEO of Tennyson Center. Ned, I think you're right. It sounds like you got your act together pretty early about this pandemic, and you're on it. Yeah, we. It's funny. It's funny how things work. I uh, I lived overseas in Africa for 16 years, and I actually worked for two agencies that were relief agencies as well. 
And so you, you, I learned you got to move fast. I was actually in China when SARS broke in 2003, which was crazy. And I was in a part of Mozambique. Uh, my family lived in a part of Mozambique that was cut off for three months because of um, flooding and cholera outbreaks and all of that. So, you know, my experience is you move fast and you set things up and you over-prepare and Tennyson has done that. Um, does that mean we're immune or that nothing will happen? Absolutely not. This is a really confusing time, but we have set things up. We've got good partners in place, and we are relentlessly focused on making sure that the children and families we work with continue to heal, even though they're scared to death right now. Well, it sounds like you're part that are on the front line, the hot spots. We talk yes, about sir. the doctors, the nurses, the emergency room, all these people that are helping out with this, but you're one of those. You're there. Yes, sir. I think uh, doctors, nurses, truck drivers, uh, all care staff, social workers, clinicians, nurses, teachers who are in residential settings like Tennyson, um, we we are um, navigating lots of people in very small spaces, and we are doing everything we can to make sure that we contain um, not only the pandemic, but that we continue to support people on their healing journeys despite their fear right now. And these children that come to you that are really have a lot of issues, what is this doing to them, this fear of the COVID-19? Are they afraid? Uh, they trust you to take care of themselves? I, I bet that's another whole issue for you guys. Yeah, they are absolutely afraid. And the, going back to how great the staff are, the staff are afraid too. I mean, let's be honest. We're all, yeah. you know, all this is a very uncertain time. Yeah. Um, but we are, uh, again, we are really focused on helping these kids process it. And I will tell you that their, the, the pain and difficulties that they've experienced in the past actually, in a weird way, are bolstering them because they've been through so much. And so sure. this is just another messy thing. It's confusing. It's uncertain. You don't know who has it or who doesn't and all of that. But the truth is is that these kids are, and, and families are strong and resilient, and they're pulling on that at, the, at a time when they're also afraid. You know, it's one of those things you can be many things at one time. You could be afraid and resilient. You can be, you know, um, anxious and sturdy. Um, and so we're trying to tap into Tennyson's approach is very strength-based, so we're very focused on tapping into those strengths and not pretending that those fears and anxieties aren't there. Not saying, "Oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it." But it's like, no, let's 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 walk into that. Let's walk into to it together. And I I see immense healing and courage in this time from children. I, I watched the other day um, a beautiful thing. There's a girl on our campus who I really, really like. I mean, I like them all, but this kid is pretty unique. And um, she's taken on herself two of the younger kiddos who are... Really? W yeah, one is five and one is seven. And she's been like, hey, I, I got your back. And, and she's afraid. And, you know, you see those things happen and you go, that kid, that, that child, when she's adult, watch out, because that's a leader right well, there. Yeah, and she'll probably be with you at Tennyson Center helping the other kids that come along. Yeah, like it's that. amazing how many people 
uh, for, at Tennyson, and, and I would say this of other places as well, like Tennyson, who actually have lived experience with this. I mean, I am not particularly unusual that I've, that I've had this journey. There are a lot of people at Tennyson who, um, who are staff who have processed their own trauma and are giving back. We have actually a surprising number of clinicians and social workers who, um, were at Columbine, for example. Oh, so, wow. They're, they're amazing people who just say, I'm not going to let that incident or that experience shape my life. I'm going to rewrite it. And they rewrite it by giving back. It's beautiful. This girl that you just mentioned that was helping out, do you find the other kids kind of pull together a little bit and help each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, I, I, I think there's a, there's, you know, there's a, this is a little overstated, but there's a little bit of a trauma bond that sometimes sure. happen where people who have similar experiences find solace in each other. And some of the older kids who have processed it more, you know, the younger kids look to, and they, the older kids take that responsibility because they remember when they were kids and they looked up to someone who helped them. And so that, that gives me great hope for well, this community. That's well said. Well said. I want to go back to a little bit about what you're doing at the Tennyson Center, and I'm just curious with all the children you have coming in that have these problems, I would imagine you're doing anything to prevent neglect and abuse from yeah. happening in the first place. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Tennyson launched about a year ago a program called Rewiring, and it's just a cool name for a very simple idea, is that if you look at every kid who is on our campus, those 32 kids, and you look at their case history, the, the story of why they got here, they're hard to read, right? You you see really awful things about abuse and neglect. Sure. But the thing that bothers me the most is there were all these missed opportunities earlier on. And and if someone had moved then, if someone had helped that family back then, then this child would not be on our campus. And so Tennyson is is working with 10 counties around Colorado to try to show that by dramatically um, intervening earlier, and I'll give you an example in a second, but the idea is if you intervene earlier in a way that stops and uh, kind of supports families when they're starting to struggle as opposed to when it gets kind of out of hand, then you could actually starve, if you will, starve the flow of children coming onto our campus, which would be a beautiful day. I would welcome it. I will happily sell 29th and Tennyson, you know, if, if we could stop kids coming on this campus. So what does that look like? There's a couple of examples that are pretty cool. One is uh, we're working with Prowers County down in the southeast of Colorado. Uh, amazing bunch of people, fabulous leaders, uh, great ideas. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to try to support a number of um, pregnant uh, moms who are struggling with substance abuse and try to build a program over time where not a single child in Prowers is born addicted to anything. And right. if that happens, that would be huge. That would be yes. huge. We're doing a, another program in Park County, early stage, but I love it. It's... Um, we're tapping into the vast potential of grandparents. So grandparents in, you know, parts of Colorado, rural Colorado, are never going to have enough therapists and clinicians. They don't live there. They live in Denver. 
and Colorado Springs and Fort Collins and Boulder, and that's great. I mean, I get it. So, but these rural counties have this amazing potential around grandparents. So we're building what we're calling granny armies, <laughs> where we work with grandmothers um, and grandfathers to uh, pair them with with moms, with pregnant moms, so prenatal, and then have them support those moms through age five. And we know that if if families get that kind of mentorship and support and don't feel so alone in those areas and we can get those kids to five, the chances of them ever becoming child welfare involved uh, drop dramatically because most of the problems happen zero to five and then they just escalate once they get into school and you can see them sure. and all that stuff. So we're unleashing the power and the purpose of grandparents to walk with families so that they never become child welfare involved again. Those are the kinds of things we're doing in rewiring, and what we believe is is if we do that, we can radically reduce the number of children and families who become child welfare involved, which is a great thing. Obviously, it's a great thing. Two, two is, so real quickly, two is we can do better with the kids who become child welfare involved because there will be fewer, and lastly, we believe it will actually save Coloradans a ton of money because it's a lot cheaper. Frankly, it's a lot better from a therapeutic side, from a trauma side and everything, but it's a lot cheaper to the state, to our taxpayers, if we move early as opposed to wait till they get to Tennyson. And so that's what we're trying to do. Good thinking, Ned. Ned Breslin, CEO of the Tennyson Center. What a great conversation. I know you need some help from the community. Please give us your website again so they know how they can reach out financially, and a lot of people want to do that because they know you need the help. Murphy, thank you so much for this time. Uh, our website is www.tennisoncenter.org, and if you can support us, particularly now as we try to support these kids and families whose experiences with trauma are being amplified and whose needs are being exacerbated by the isolation that they're feeling, that'd be phenomenal. Once this breaks and once we get to our post-COVID-19 world, please come and help us by volunteering and doing all that because kids need um, healthy adults around them to show them that they are seen and cared for and that their future is not anything but positive. Well said, Ned. We'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us. It's Mile High Magazine. Thank you guys for listening. Be safe out there. We'll talk to you next week.